page 502 in the Church Bible. It's Esther chapter 2, and we're continuing our series in the Unseen God today. Last week we left the king of Persia in a crisis, didn't we? Sacking his queen in a fit of drunken rage, a decision that would define his life for the next four years. For in that irrational moment, King Xerxes issued a decree that could not be revoked. We call it the law of the Medes and the Persians. There was no going back. He had been publicly humiliated by Queen Vashti and he had reacted irresponsibly. Esther chapter 2 reminds us today that Xerxes, due to his own pride and his ill-judged response, had lost his wife. He had lost his wife. But between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2, four years have elapsed. It's hard to work that out when it just kind of jumps on, Esther chapter 1 and the Esther chapter 2, but four years, how do we know that? Well, if you want to cast your eye down to Esther chapter 1 verse 3, it tells us that it was the third year of King Xerxes at the start of the story, and in Esther chapter 2 verse 16, it tells us that he was into the seventh year of his reign. So what happened in those four years between chapter 1 and chapter 2? Well, the history books are helpful here because they record for us in great detail that exactly during those four years, Persia faced her most famous military defeat. Up until this point, King Xerxes and his army of 180,000 crack troops had been almost unbeatable. But on this occasion... Xerxes' ambitious attempt to conquer Greece ended in complete disaster, beaten on the land and in the sea. So the second thing we notice is that Xerxes lost a war. One cannot help but think that Xerxes' decision to head off to war was another of his ill-thought-through reactions. Maybe he was becoming increasingly irritable. No vasty at home. No queen to confide in. And so he heads off to war in the heat of, well, a red mist that's descended. He returns home, not to the fanfare of victory. Every other time Xerxes had come back, it had all been to the fanfare of what a great army we have, what a great military leader we've got. But he doesn't come home to that, and neither does he come home to the welcoming arms of a wife, because she's gone. The luxurious citadel of Susa seemed incredibly quiet. The man who had everything came home to nothing. He had pushed away those closest to him due to his uncontrollable temper. Folks, I touched on it last week, but I think it needs reiterating today because I see it so often, even in church life. Be warned what we do or say to those we care about most when the red mist descends upon us. Because once it's out, there's no taking it back. Where is that most likely to happen to us? For some of us, is it first thing in the morning when everyone's under pressure to get out the door? Is it the times of added pressure whenever folks are ill or something just hasn't quite worked out? Is it the end of a very busy working week when you've carried the load and you want to get home and just get on with relaxing, but something else comes in the way? Don't make big decisions and don't make big statements when you're pressured by many things because inevitably it'll end in disaster. And how often do we hear of those who seem to have it all, like Xerxes, and yet they talk of loneliness 
emptiness, lack of meaning, and purpose. I think lots of you saw them, but the recent statistics produced to reflect the national mood across the United Kingdom was stark, wasn't it? Did you know the average person in Northern Ireland spends around £13,000 on personal items, essential and non-essential, each year? Individuals, per head. Whereas in the United Kingdom, it's £3,500 less per person. Food and grocery sales dipped in England, Scotland, and Wales over Christmas for the first time in a long time as families tightened their belts. The only nation to buck that trend was Northern Ireland, where food sales and grocery sales at Christmas went through the roof. And yet Northern Ireland has the highest rate of suicide per head than anywhere in the United Kingdom. Now, it's not a perfect correlation but I think there's something in it. The more you have, don't make you happier. There's a mental health epidemic in Northern Ireland, which may be attributed to many things, but I think keeping up with your neighbors or portraying a happy life whilst inwardly aching must be one of the leading factors. Northern Ireland suffers from a severe case of affluenza. We appear to be affluent and happy and rich, And our Instagram posts are upbeat, yet underneath we are an aching, breaking society. The court officials in Persia, having seen the emptiness of their master's life, and the forlorn look in his face suggest a course of action that might perk him up, as they suggest that they'll get a new queen. Xerxes will take anything at this stage, and if sex will do it, or a meaningful relationship, no matter with who it is, so long as the ache is dulled or the cracks are papered over, he'll take it. And that's always a danger for us too, isn't it? I see it all too often in passport work. Let's go out with him or her. Let's take up that hobby or go to that party. It'll fill a gap. It'll soothe an ache. Let's do this for a while. Let's keep us happy. A short-term buzz of excitement can always be very appealing, but it's often not very rewarding and inevitably it'll leave us to deep regret. The king in verse 4 here, he follows their advice. And Xerxes, more than anything else, wants to fill his lostness. And whilst all this is going on in the palace, in the streets outside in Susa, in the slums we find two characters who've also known great loss. Look at verses 6 and 7. We read there of two new characters that were introduced to Mordecai and Hadassah, or Esther as she's known. Let's think about Mordecai first of all. A man who had lost his standing. A man who had lost his standing. We learn quite a lot about Mordecai within just a couple of verses, don't we? Verse 5, if you were to do a like-for-like translation from the Hebrew, should actually read, A man of Judah there was. A man of Judah there was. Which should automatically make us think, Oh, we're on a road trip back to Jerusalem. We're heading back home. This sounds great. But sadly, we come to our senses when we realize that this man of Judah... Is in Susa. He's a thousand miles from home. He's a Jew in exile. It's a solid reminder that God's people are not where they're meant to be. But this sadness is compounded as we trace Mordecai's family line. Look at verse 5 again. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Grandfather was Shemai, and his great-grandfather was Kish. Now, some I'm almost tempted to test this morning, but I won't embarrass anyone. Any avid reader of the Old Testament will automatically know whose family line that is. 
the family line of the first king of Israel, King Saul. And as often happens in families, the names are repeated. You get given the name of your grandfather, a great-grandfather. And Saul's father was Kish, and his closest family member that we read about, he hated David and tried to kill David in the old town, was Shammai. Mordecai is from a royal family. Mordecai's heritage was part of a royal family, but it was long gone. And look at verse 6 is really telling as well. The fact that his grandparents had been carried into captivity alongside King Jehoiakim says that he was a noble family. If they were taken away with the king, it must have been the fact that he was royalty. If circumstances had been different, Mordecai could have been a senior official back home in the government of Judah. Here was a chap whose HRH titles were taken from him making no comment. But he had lost his status. Mordecai's family might have lost its standing, but he's lost none of his care and his love for his relatives, has he? He looks out for the needy and the poor. He does what God describes in the Old Testament that shows pure faith. Verse 7, he shows his devotion to his young cousin Hadassah, a young lady who'd lost her parents, but has been privileged to find a father figure in the form of Mordecai. And that's the next thing we find. Hadassah has lost her parents. This girl, also known by her Persian name of Esther in verse 7, we read one thing about her, and that she had a lovely figure and she was beautiful. Now, it's at this point many of people who read the Old Testament get carried away a bit. And they begin to describe Esther as almost like the Cinderella of the Old Testament. Or even worse, Persia's got talent or something like that in that the heroine, Esther, has a real backsob story of being far from home. You can almost see it on the screen, can't you? Orphaned, aged eight. All she ever wanted to be as she grew up was a princess. And she admired Queen Vashti. And it was only ever her dream to live in a palace. Oh, and look, it all happens. And as we reach for our hankies and pick up our phones to vote her into the great race for the palace, live and exclusive on Channel 5, we come to realize that the next sex of the story is much more sinister than Esther entering Miss Persia, 479 BC. Why? Look at verse 8. Esther has no choice about this. She was taken, forcibly taken from the loving home of Mordecai. Esther did not apply. Esther did not fill in a form. Esther did not audition between the equivalent of Persian of Simon Cowell or whoever. She'd sent a new video blog. Esther was forcibly taken, removed from her home, and Esther, as a subsequent, lost her freedom. She lost her freedom. She was taken, we read, to Haggai, who was in charge of the harem. Commentators suggest she was one of about 400 girls who was brought in from around the empire. Young, vulnerable, beautiful. These women were trafficked in order to lighten the mood of the king. They were ripped from their families to live a life of sexual slavery to the king. Esther's new fairy story, friends. And let's not teach it to our children and young people as if it is. It's no fairy story. This is a story of sexual harassment. And within the harem... Esther lost her dignity. As these young ladies end up living their lives as objects to be enjoyed, not as wives to be adored. 
Having already been chosen for their incredible beauty, they were put through 12 months of beauty treatment. Look at verse 12. Six months oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. Now, I don't know, but to some of the ladies here today, this kind of detail and attention to beauty sounds like your idea of bliss. New sense. Solutions for their skin. As many of you know, with being from Belfast, I still call it home, and I love wandering the streets of the city center, but, but there's one place, there's one area of the city that makes me break out into a cold sweat, and it's not the falls of the Shankill. It's the ground floor of Debenhams and Castle Court, <laughs> where you have to run the gauntlet of a series of women who've either just walked out of a glossy magazine with faces painted on, and they always look surprised to see you because their eyes are like that. It's hard to know whether they're laughing or smiling. And this fear was compounded when one of my mum's cousin's daughters got a job there and even dared speak to me as I tried to weave my way to the men's socks. But what was going on in the citadel of Susa? Some authors describe these excruciating treatments of boiling oils and fumigation to change the size, shape, and color of skin. It was a horrendous process all to be made more beautiful, to be sculpted into the figure that pleased Xerxes. It was horrendous. Interesting, there was a survey published in Carolina as far back as 1977, I'm sure the figures might have changed, which found that 15% of the women in Carolina dyed their hair regularly, 22% wore false eyelashes, 98% wore some kind of eye makeup whilst... 100% voted in favor of a resolution condemning any kind of false packaging. The cogs are turning for some of you. I am sure that Esther was not into false advertising, trying to be someone that she wasn't, but the reality is the girls in the harem weren't spending the year cultivating their characters. They were battling to win a crown. Esther became another face just to work on as opposed to a girl to be loved. But in the midst of this loss, we do see the unseen God at work. For all that was lost, do you see what Esther and Mordecai find? Two things that are the way they're found. Here's the first. They find favor in the eyes of the officials. Do you see that in verse 9? Esther's hardly in through the door where she's given her own apartment and Haggai gives her seven attendants and specialist treatment. Verses 15 to 17, Haggai was obviously a close confidant of the king and he knew what he preferred. And so as Esther even enters the throne room, he makes all the suggestions about what she should wear and how she should look. He gives the advice of an insider. The word in verse 9 that describes the favor that Esther received from Haggai is an amazing word because the only other person in the Bible who's described as showing favor in this way is God. It's hesed. It's the covenant faithfulness word. Yes, Haggai showed a faithfulness and a commitment to Esther through this whole process, and she found favor, a godlike favor. She had lost her freedom, but quickly found favor. Maybe Esther's life stood out in stark contrast to the cattiness of the girls around her. And even though it was not right what Mordecai had said to Esther, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Don't give away that secret. I wonder that every day, because Esther was trying not to say it, 
and thinking, Mordecai says I'm not the same one of the people of God. Mordecai says I'm not the same one of the people of God. Was she in her head thinking, I'm one of the people of God. 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 And did that just get her through? This resulted in Esther finding favor in the eyes of the king. Look at verses 17 and 18. It appears that when Esther comes into the throne room, it was love at first sight. He takes it upon himself to automatically crown her king. He doesn't even go back to his officials. He gives her the crown. And then, within four throwaway verses at the end of the chapter, the author wants to alert us to someone else who gets recognition. Do you see it? Mordecai also finds favor with the king. Let's have a look at the last few verses. 21 on. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers, who guarded the door, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot, told Queen Esther, who reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated, found to be true, the two officials were impaled in poles. And this is recorded in the book of the Annals of the Presence of the King. Having saved the king's life, Mordecai's name is recorded, but he's not yet rewarded. I'll keep. I'll keep. And so as we wrap up, and all that was lost, and through all that was found in Esther chapter 2, what is it we're to learn? I think there's two big things we're to learn. First one is this. Beauty can be a gift or a burden. Beauty can be a gift or a burden. Esther had natural good looks. God had gifted her with beauty. And some of us aspire to look good. Many of us have spent thousands of pounds on the clothes we wear, the color, length, and style of our hair, the tone of our skin, or the physique we would like to have. But if that is all-consuming in us, if we are constantly looking in the mirror, seeking better cosmetics, classier clothes, we need to be concerned that we have not turned ourselves into objects to be looked at as opposed to people to be respected. For God made us who we are. God made us who we are. We're created in his likeness. We will save ourselves years of worry, and let me give you a tip here, thousands of pounds, if we content ourselves with who we are and how we look. And parents, especially of girls, do not objectify your children. Do not make them mini-me's. Be careful not to send out the signal that you have got to look this way to be liked. And so careful about what you say, how they look, or what they wear. Beware an outward obsession. Because beauty can be a gift or a burden. I remember talking to one dear, lovely Christian lady who was concerned about her three daughters, and she said of one of them, you know, David, what her greatest danger is? She's beautiful. She's beautiful. Everyone loves how she looks, and that will be her greatest burden in life. She's beautiful. In other words, this young lady would have no shortage of romantic interest. Everyone would know her and want to know her. Good looks open doors, yes, but not all doors are to be walked through. It might be looks for some of us here today. For others, it might be our family reputation as our gift or our burden, or it might be wealth or achievement. It might be your magnetic personality. It could be your intellect or your business. It might be how you're perceived even as a Christian, knowledgeable, wise, and sound. But any of that can make us proud and be a gift or a burden. 
may we never let those things that we've been blessed with cause us to stumble. Let us ask ourselves regularly by way of checks and balances, what should I do with the gifts that I have, with the talents I possess? Am I just using them for my own ends to make me look good, to further my own ends? Beauty can be a gift or a burden. And here's the second lesson we learn. There's something blossoming in the briars. There's something blossoming in the briars. Let me say something that might confuse or upset some of us today. This book of Esther is full of moral contradictions, questionable decisions by Mordecai and Esther. I mean, Mordecai is insistent that Esther does not give away that she's a Jew, in other words, to lie. He calls her to cover up her true identity. The scene in Susa is full of sexual implications that we won't go into at this time on a Sunday. But the outcome of these events are not to be celebrated. We're not to go, yes, Esther's won! That's not how we're to read it. These are not all nice, neat, and tidy events. And see, that's the problem with church life in Northern Ireland, isn't it? We have painted such a picture that once you're in here, everyone's awesome. (laughs) Everyone's great. But we're not. You're not, and I'm not. If you're in pursuit of the perfect church, this isn't one, and there isn't one, and you can't create one. And amongst God's people, there can be deceit, and corruption, and confusion, and sexual tension, and silence when we should be speaking, and arguments, and an ill temper, and cover-up, and chaos, never mind underlying hurts and heartaches. Of course we strive for better. We're told to become more like Jesus, but God's people are a broken people. We're sinners saved by grace. Our lives, as we look at them, and the families that surround us, do not have everything tied up in nice, neat little ribbons. We live as sinners in a sinful world. But we're saved. We're saved. God loves his people. He delights in his people. He remains committed to his people in every age, in the citadel of Susa and in the townlands of Mid-Ulster. How do I know? Well, I think we get more than a hint of it through the name of the central character of the story. Who was she? In Persia, she was called Esther, which means star. Not the star that shines in the sky, but the name Esther means the star-shaped petal that comes out in a flower. And in her native Hebrew, she was named Hadassah, which means myrtle. And again, if you know your Old Testaments, the myrtle plant always appears in the wilderness. Isaiah 55, 12 and 13 remind us, you will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees in the field will clap their hands. And then on the screen we read these words, instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, instead of briars the myrtle will grow or the hadassah will grow or the ester will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Do you see it? It's all there. A time was coming when God's people would no longer be enslaved. In the times when life is hardest, suffering the deepest, worries overwhelming, sins insurmountable, guilt of the past inescapable, where there are briars and thorns and the prickly stuff that punctures our lives, the stuff we face and get jagged at every turn, even there, there is an unfolding blossom. Even there, for our God is the only one 
who has promised to and done something about replacing the thorns that scratch with the flower that's fragrant. For in wearing such a cruel crown of thorns and being laid so low in a grave, our God has already intervened. Folks, don't say when's God going to do something about our suffering. He already has. Our beautiful Savior took the scratches and the cuts that ran deep and where sin seemed to have won the day and death seemed to have been victorious, planted on Good Friday, blossomed on Easter Sunday, so that everyone who's rooted in Jesus Christ by faith alone will one day come to know that the briars of life will always be replaced by the blossom. Esther, Hadassah, named star and myrtle at this time and in this place is God's instrument of bringing fresh hope in hard times to God's people. Soon their lives would come under threat as God's people were about to be extinguished. But in the briars, something beautiful was about to appear. Not the beauty of Esther's looks or Mordecai's intellect, but the beauty of our God's faithfulness to his sinful Esther and Mordecai are not the heroes of this story. They're not. God is. This is the God who even in Esther and Mordecai's dubious responses and questionable morality is still working things for his purposes and for our final good. Our God is ruggedly committed to his redeemed people for he has written our guarantee in his own blood. We are the apple of his eye. We are his beloved ones. So that in all of life's turbulence, we can still bow before his majesty and rest in his security. For he is the only one who can bring blossom from the thorns. Esther was brought in. This girl who'd lost everything. Dignity, family, security. But in that moment, she is crying by a pagan king. But you and I, as Psalm 103 reminds us, are crowned by an altogether different king. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, who redeems your life from the pit, even from death, and crowns you. That's you if you're a believer today. Crowns you with love, and compassion. You are crowned by the King of Kings. What a God. What a Savior. What a blossom. Even in the prickly stuff of life. Friends, do not give up. Do not lose heart. For He will bring good even from life's scratches and strains and heartache. Let's pray. Lord, how else can we sleep at night with that prickle of the briars that we feel, the sharp sting of those thistles and the sins of this life, without that knowledge of a God for whom where sin was great, grace was greater still. Thank you for your commitment of love to us. 
which will never run out and is always evergreen, blossoming, even in the briars. We acknowledge that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and glory, wisdom and thanks.